Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are live on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, thinking through God's Word together. Glad to have you all with us as we continue to look at Romans 9 through 11 and other passages, trying to answer the question, uh, what about Israel? Glad you could join us. So we have been uh, away from Romans 11 for several uh, mornings thus far, and we're going to stay away but we're going to start working our way back a little bit and uh, head toward the original question that we began to answer. So let's take a look at where we're at, catch you up a little bit. If you've missed some, I want to reiterate uh, some of the things we talk about today. If you haven't been steady along with us, you're going to want to go back and watch those other live streams because you're going to be kind of caught in the middle here. And as you just heard in that song, we don't want to be caught in the middle. And those of you who are listening on podcast are going to have to go look up my son's album, Looking Back at Tomorrow. His name is Gabe Gooden, and play the song Beautiful Day, so you know what I just referred to. All right, so Romans 11.25 says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Again, a mystery in the Bible is something that was hidden that has now been revealed. So in the context of everything Paul has been teaching here about Israel and the Gentiles, uh, he says there's, there's a mystery, and I want you to know it. I want you to understand now that it's been fully disclosed, I'm here to tell it to you. And he has a, a pastoral concern here. He doesn't want them to be wise in their own estimation. Don't be arrogant toward the Jews. And here's the mystery, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until... The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So we're trying to figure out what does he mean by this phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles. What many of you have been taught, and I say that as a generalization, I don't know my full audience here, but I know the predominant view in the church today is that this is talking about the full number of Gentiles coming to faith in Christ so from the first coming of Jesus until his second coming, the gospel is going to be primarily for non-Jews, primarily for the world at large. And then at some point, when that last Gentile uh, has heard the gospel, that last elect Gentile, and heard the gospel and believed, then the end will come. And Jesus will come back, second coming. And that somewhere toward the end of that period, this, this church age, this age of the gospel, this uh, inner advental period, whatever you want to call it, the, this time between Jesus' first and second coming, somewhere toward the end of that, then there will be a large number of Jews, ethnic Jews, who are converted to Christ. That's the traditional Reformed view of, of this passage, uh, the traditional dispensational view is that uh, this has to do with the uh, the rapture and the, the Jews going back to Jerusalem and uh, and the millennium and all that. Well, I'm not persuaded that, certainly I believe the dispensational view is in error because of, uh, well, all the things, all the things that we, we talk about. I'm not persuaded the traditional Reformed view is correct. I'm not convinced that this fullness of the Gentiles is yet future, and that this is talking about the end. 
Um, so that's why I'm walking through. There, we've pointed out in past uh, live streams here that the continual, the, the repeated time references. Now, he says, now at the present time, and even here in this passage, the hardening has occurred until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So let's look at that term a little bit. He used, this word fullness is the Greek word pleroma. Pleroma, it's, uh, it's the, uh, the noun form of the uh, word plerao, which is the uh, Matthew's favorite word. He uses it all the time in the Gospel of Matthew for the fulfillment. This was this occurred to fulfill what the prophet said. You know, all those times. If you look up in English, the word fulfillment or fulfill in the Matthew, you'll see that he used it constantly as the word to say these Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in this event or this thing that Jesus did, that kind of thing. That's the uh, the. The verb, this is the uh, the noun form of that. The fulfillment or the fullness it can mean as well. In other places in the New Testament, this word means uh, to be filled full idea. So you can see why that's the uh, fulfillment of prophecy. The time has been filled full now for this to be uh, brought to pass, to be realized, that kind of thing. So Paul uses exactly the same word in, uh, in, in Romans 11, 12, we already covered this, but let's go back and take a look at it. Here it's translated fulfillment, but it's exactly the same word. In fact, look, here in the Greek, even if you can't read Greek, uh, you can see the shape of these letters here. Can you see that? Yeah, you can see that. So I've highlighted there in red, pleroma is this word. And in verse 11, uh, verse 12 rather, and verse 25, they're exactly the same word. Do you, do you see that? See the, uh, for those of you that uh, went to college and knows this is pi, or maybe you're a mathematician, you know pi. <laughs> and lambda and so on. So play Roma, same exact words, same form of the words, everything. So here in verse 12, he said, speaking of the Jews, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles or the nations, same word, ethnos, nations, Gentiles, it can be translated both ways. How much more will their fullness be or their fulfillment be? So look at look at the parallel here. The Jews transgressed something. What did they do? They rejected Christ. That's the transgression. They failed. Their failure, that's the Jewish failure, is their failure to accept Jesus as Messiah and receive his righteousness and the promises. That's that's what we we talked about previously, all leading up to this. If the Jews Rejection of Christ, basically, is failure. Uh, their failure is riches for the nations because the gospel is not going to the nations. How much more will there, the Jews, fulfillment or fullness be? In the context of this verse, in the parallelism of this verse, what is their fulfillment or their fullness? Can you see it? Tell me, do you see do you see what this word fulfillment means in this verse? If the Jews' rejection of Christ is riches for the world, if their failure to receive the benefits of Christ is riches for the Gentiles or the nations, how much more will there the Jews' fullness be or fulfillment be? What would their fullness or fulfillment be in verse 12 here? Anybody? And I know there's a... 10 second or so delay, so I'm going to sing my uh, 
my uh, filler music for you. Maybe I'll launch into some Star Wars music since I didn't acknowledge May the Fourth be with you yesterday. Um, what do you see? What their fullness or fulfillment would be in this? Yeah, Elon God, exactly. If if the Jews' rejection of Christ is riches for the to the nations, how much more would their accepting of Christ, their receiving Christ, their uh, putting their trust in Christ be. Do you, do you see how that is the, 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 the intent here, the meaning of this fullness, fulfillment idea? Well, in verse 25, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fulfillment or the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What if he's using the term in exactly the same sense here? And you can probably tell by the way I'm asking the question that that's what I think is going on. The fulfillment of the Gentiles, the Gentiles coming in to what? Let's see if we can answer that question. So he ties this all to two passages in Isaiah. These three verses, or these three sentences in verses 26 and 27, and for those of you listening, this is Romans eleven twenty six. So all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. We covered all of this in a previous lesson. And then here at the end of verse 27, he quotes from Isaiah 27. And this is in the context of the destruction of the temple. So we're trying to figure out what is the connection between the, the Redeemer or Deliverer coming from Zion, the destruction of the temple, and the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. That's kind of, the, those are the pieces we're trying to put together here. So we have spent time looking at the predictions in the Old Testament of the destruction of the temple. Daniel uh, prophesied about this, and that led us to Jesus himself prophesying about this. And uh, today I want to try to decide where to go today. Today we're going to kind of finish building the case that Luke 21 and Matthew 24 and Mark 13, those are all parallel passages, are talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and then begin working our way back toward Romans 11. So we won't finish it all today, but I want to I want to keep I, I want you to see, those Olivet Discourse passages, that's what it's called. It's called the, the uh, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13. Those are called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. And all three of those passages contain the same account uh, of Jesus talking with his disciples about the destruction of Jerusalem. But we so easily believe he's talking about the the second coming, the end times, because that's what so many of us have heard from preachers and teachers, but in the context, that doesn't fit. I'm trying to show you that, that this is predicting the fall of Jerusalem that Daniel spoke of, okay? So let's, uh, let's look at Mark 13. So same count as we saw in Luke 21, just a little different perspective because Mark's writing here. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Again, the beautiful Jewish temple of Jesus' day. Jesus said, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone 
will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Take a good look, gentlemen. This temple is going to be destroyed. Now, these are Jewish men who knew the Old Testament. They knew Daniel. In Matthew, we've already seen that Jesus quotes, he says, the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about. These men knew Daniel. They knew the prophecy that Gabriel brought, that 77s are decreed for your people and for the sanctuary. It's going to be destroyed. So when Jesus says this, they take note, oh, oh, you're telling us that Daniel 9 is about to be fulfilled? So he's sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew are questioning him privately. Tell us, Lord, tell us, when will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed? What will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Jesus begins to say, see to it that no one misleads you. Again, remember who the you is here. He's talking to Peter, Andrew, James, and John. See it? Peter, James, John, Andrew. Jesus says, see to it that no one misleads you. He doesn't say, see to it that no one misleads a bunch of Christians Thousands of years later, Peter, don't be misled. Andrew, don't be misled. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. Don't you be misled. I'm telling you, brothers, I'm telling you, gentlemen, don't let someone mislead you about all this. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom will rise up against kingdom. Now, isn't it interesting that here they are asking about the destruction of Jerusalem and Jesus responds to their question about when with saying there are going to be wars and battles among nations. Why would he answer that that way? I said this, I think it was yesterday, as I have prepared uh, for this New Covenant School of Theology course that I'm teaching right now on the Old Testament prophets, first time I've taught this course. Uh, one of our other professors taught it uh, in previous uh, years, but I taught it this year, and it's been a beast. It's been a monster. Uh, and there's just so much there in, in the, uh, the, the prophets of the Old Testament. And what I realized as I was studying it and as I've been teaching our students and, and, you know, I knew this, but it just has become more plain to me. We are just largely ignorant of the Old Testament, the prophets. Uh, we as Christians, I, you know, I pastored for 25 years. I didn't spend a lot of time in the prophets. I didn't preach and teach through uh, prophetic books. You know, you might pick a, 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 a Jonah, <laughs> something like that, or one of those short ones, Habakkuk or something, um, Obadiah, you know, but we just don't spend a lot of time in the prophets. I, I think we, we don't really know what to do with the prophets and we don't understand them. And I'm telling you, as you dive in and really look at what is there, on one hand, it's confusing. On the other hand, as you begin to read how the New Testament quotes and refers to the Old Testament, you begin to see things and realize Oh, so much of what it has happened in the, in the New Testament scriptures was predicted. It makes sense. This whole idea of wars and rumors of wars, uh, nations battling one another, uh, that 
is all part of the language, the terminology, the visions the prophets saw surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. It's all there. So it's not surprising that Jesus would say this and that the disciples would know war is part of the context of the fulfillment of this. How is the stone, how, how are the stones of the temple going to be toppled so that there's not one stone left upon another? Well, that is an indication of war. That's what knocks a temple over is some enemy comes and burns it down and, and, and destroys it. That's what happens. So Jesus is here saying to the, to the disciples, don't be misled. Yeah, you're going to hear about wars. You're going to hear about fighting. You're going to hear about this nation rebelling against the, this nation and kingdoms, you know, smaller areas that plenty of people wanted to throw off Roman rule. Don't be misled. That's not the end. You will know. It'll be obvious when Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. He says there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. Again, this is common. Go back and read the prophets. This is very common. When God raises up a nation to destroy another nation, he uses, uh, he accompanies those destructions with earthquakes and famines and warfare. It's, it's great turmoil everywhere. This is common in the prophets uh, regarding one nation destroying another. He says, these are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. So there's going to be this stuff going on leading up toward the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Uh, I, I don't want to go too far afield here, but uh, just something for you to think about. Read 1 Corinthians 7 sometime. That's uh, the passage where Paul talks about uh, remaining single and not getting married. I recommend that you stay single. And sometimes we struggle with that and think, but but he holds marriage in high, such high esteem, like in Ephesians 5. What a glorious passage. And, and he writes about husbands and wives on, in several of his letters. So why here does he say to everybody, I, I think it's better for you if you stay unmarried? Well, he adds some qualifying statements that I think sometimes we don't emphasize as we're talking to people who are not married about staying single. He says, because of the present distress, and we can, we can tie in historically some significant famines and persecutions against the Jews and the church because the Romans lumped Christians and Jews together. They didn't see a distinction. And there were there was lots of persecution against Christians and Jews, and there were famines, and there were earthquakes going on when Paul is writing, and, he, and I think that's the distress he's talking about. Right now, with what's all going on around us, you're better off not getting married because to have the responsibility of a wife and kids in this situation, it's tough. It's kind of like, you know, with what's going on in, in Ukraine and if you know, people are predicting that there could be famine here because of the supply issues and the lack of fertilizer and the economy and, you know, are we heading toward a recession? And you can imagine getting to a place where things are pretty tough in, in our day and the apostle, if he were here saying, I encourage you not to be tied down to, a, I shouldn't say it that way, <laughs> not to be, not, not to take a spouse and have a family and kids in light of all that's happening right now, because it's just really hard 
with when you're responsible for a wife and children in, in the current distress. So this stuff happened in the first century. The famines, the earthquakes, it was going on. Read your history books. It was going on. Jesus warned them. This is all happening. Be on your guard. For they will deliver you, Peter, Andrew, James, John. They'll deliver you and the rest of the disciples, of course, as they share this with their brothers. To the courts, you'll be flogged in the synagogues. You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached. To who? To all the nations. See that? The end, the toppling of the temple, that's the context. The toppling of the temple cannot happen until first the gospel is preached to all the nations. See that? Now, you may be thinking right now, wait a minute. That hasn't happened, right? Obviously, that has not happened. So this has to somehow be thrust into the future. This We're still preaching the gospel. Some of you are missionaries. We're still sending missionaries. The gospel has not been preached to the nation. So clearly, Jesus' words have not been fulfilled. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Look at Colossians 1, 3 and following with me. Here's Paul writing to this Gentile church in Colossae. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of the gospel. Whoops. The gospel, this is back to Mark 13. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Colossians 1.5 the, you have heard the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in, what's this phrase? All the world. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul, writing to the Colossian Christians here, says, the gospel came to you. And it is bearing fruit in you and is bearing fruit and has come in all the world. Now, does, does he mean every single person in every single nation for all time has heard the gospel? No, but he, he's using, look, all the saints uh, kind of thing. Uh, for Compared to a, a Jewish-centric focus, which the the disciples had when the gospel goes out to the Mediterranean regions, to all these uh, Gentile cities, it, compared to the Jews, it's the whole world. When you read the New Testament, you see the word world, all, the, the, the repeated rephrase, uh, phrases, all the world, all the world, all the world. It is in, it usually, not always, but usually in contrast to the Jews, and we think, oh, it must be every single human being. No, that's not the point. For God, in this way, loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That does not, he's not talking about every single individual. That, that, that's not the point. The point is, Jesus is, or John, I believe, is the one speaking there, even though it's in red letters in most of your Bibles. I believe it's John. John is describing 
this gospel was never intended merely for the Jews. The Jews thought it was. Think about the beginning of Acts. Jesus tells the disciples at the beginning of Acts, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, outside of Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And what do those disciples do? Where do they take the gospel for years? Just to the Jews, just to Jerusalem. In fact, it's not until Paul, before he is the Apostle Paul, when he is persecuting Christians, it's not until the persecution really ramps up, until the heat is turned up on Christians in Jerusalem, that they finally flee Jerusalem and and go to the surrounding regions, including Samaria, and take the gospel with them. It's almost as if, it's almost as if, I'm speculating a little bit here, but Jesus says, take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and the disciples plant themselves in Jerusalem and stay there. And it's it's sort of like Jesus says, look, I told you all to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. You're not doing it? All right, I'm going to kick you out of Jerusalem with, with persecution so that you'll go outside of the Jewish capital here and take the gospel with you. And what happened? Some of them went down to Samaria. And Philip went down there and started preaching the gospel. And Christians, these Samaritans became Christians. And everywhere they went, they took the gospel. And then God raised up this man, Saul, one of the leading Jews of the day, who was an intelligent man, a well-educated man, and flying up the ranks of Judaism. Jesus confronts him head on on the road to Damascus, turns him instantaneously almost into a Christian, and then sends him out to all the surrounding nations, the Gentile nations, the pagan nations. And he preaches and teaches and sends letters to the Galatia region and the Ephesus city and Philippi and Colossae and Thessalonica and Antioch and all over throughout the entire Roman Empire and finally sets his sights on Rome itself. And as you read through the book of Acts, he wants to get to Rome. Jesus told him he's going to go to Rome. He keeps trying to get to Rome and he gets tied up in Jerusalem for years waiting to be tried for these false accusations that the uh, Jewish leaders have brought to him. And he's he's sitting there um, uh, uh, waiting for two years, waiting for the trial to finally finish. And then he says, okay, I'm, I'm sick of this. I got to get to Rome. And he appeals to Caesar because he knows that is a guarantee to get him to Rome. So, you know, sometimes people think Paul appealed to Caesar as a clever way to avoid the trial and the, and the judgment there in Jerusalem. I don't think that was going on at all. I think he's thinking, I got to get to Rome. Jesus told me to go to Rome. I got to get to Rome. If I can convert people in the capital city, think about how the gospel could impact the whole empire if I can bring the gospel to the capital city. Now, it was already there. The church was started. But if, if I can have fruit there in the capital city, and then he wanted to go on to Spain. And so he appeals to Caesar so he can have a one-way ticket to get to Rome and preach the gospel there. He almost single-handedly fulfilled this prediction of Jesus that the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. 
by the time of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Paul can say, like he did to the Colossians, this gospel is bearing fruit in all the world. Now, did he come to America? Did the gospel come to America? North America? South America? No. But in contrast to these men on the, at the Olivet Discourse, contrast to what their perspective, which was Jewish-centric, Jerusalem-centric, they read the, the prophets of the Old Testament. They read Isaiah and Daniel, and they were convinced everything God was doing on planet Earth was centered on Israel. And they had good reason for that. Because God said things like, I'm going to lift up the mountain of Mount Zion and all the nations will stream to it. Isaiah 2. So naturally they think Jerusalem's going to be the headquarters for the whole world. But they didn't understand that all of that was actually predicting Jesus and the new Jerusalem, the church, and then instead of the nations flocking to a mountain in the Near East. Instead, the mountain is going to go out to the whole world. Jesus, when he resurrected, said, go and disciple the nations. All authority has been given to me. I'm the king of the universe. All authority has been given to me. Go disciple the nations. The nations will hear the gospel and then the fall of Jerusalem will come. When they arrest you, disciples, do not worry beforehand about what you're to say. Say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it's the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You, disciples, will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader of Daniel understand. See, the the NAS here changes this from red letters to black letters, indicating that Jesus said all of this and that da- that uh, Matthew inserted this uh, this parenthetical statement. I don't think so. Now, maybe. I don't think so. I think Jesus said it. I think Jesus is saying, when you, James, John, Peter, Andrew, when you disciples see the abomination of desolation, when you see that which makes the city desolate, Daniel 9. And again, if you didn't catch our earlier lessons, you got to go back and and watch those and, and read through Daniel 9 and see what he's talking about here. The abomination of desolation is the coming desolation, wiping out Jerusalem and knocking over the temple. When you see that there, let the one who's reading Daniel, I think this is Jesus saying, read Daniel again. When you see that, uh, as Luke put it, when you see the armies coming upon Jerusalem, get out of Dodge. Get out of Judea. Men, get out of here. Flee. The one who's on the housetop must not go down. Or go get anything out of his house. Because you might get trapped in the siege and and be killed. And the Jews will turn on you. Because remember, they're going to turn on each other. Read Josephus. And the one who's in the field must not turn back to get his coat. When you see the armies, go, flee, run. Woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in winter. 
For those days will be a tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Look at that word tribulation. Many of you have been taught that the tribulation, the great tribulation is coming. If it's coming, you have to go to some other passage than this one. Because this tribulation is talking about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This is good news. I think it's good news. What I'm saying is I the tribulation already happened. The tribulation was not for our future. The tribulation was for the Jews in the fall of Jerusalem. And it was a great tribulation such that had never happened. And Jesus says it'll never happen again this way. That's good news. Now, I know there are other statements in the New Testament that uh, I believe, and many of you believe, are talking about persecution uh, coming against the church in some form, you know, in the end, I, I believe there, there is, someone asked me in one of the comments in my post-mill, I'm not post-mill, uh, there are too many passages that seem to me to still describe um, the ongoing age, and there's enough unbelievers and unbelief in the world that I don't see the traditional post-mill golden age where 95 to sort of throw make up a statistic that 95% of the people in, on planet Earth are Christian, that kind of thing. I don't, I don't see the scripture bearing that out. I'm very optimistic. I told someone I'm optimal. I'm not post-mill, but I'm optimal. I believe the scriptures also say that the gospel is going to grow and grow and grow and grow. And as that happens, as, as more and more people become Christians, that's going to have an impact on the world for good. Uh, imagine for a moment, imagine if all of, just here in America, if all of our leaders, our governmental leaders were believers. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the impact on America if all of our leaders were Christian? The kinds of laws they would pass and the thriving technology you know, all the great scientific advances happened because of men trying to find out more about this world God created. They were Christians, at least uh, Christian-ish. They were, they, were, they were theists. Anyway, I believe it's good news that this tribulation happened in 70 AD and that we're not waiting for it. Because he says it was so bad, nothing like this will ever happen again. In fact, he says, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. So again, talking to his disciples, if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, behold, here he is, do not believe him. For false Christ, false prophets will arise, will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, I told you in advance. Peter, James, John, I'm telling you in advance. Spread the word here among the disciples. I'm telling you in advance. Do not be taken by surprise when this happens. When you see the armies from Rome marching down on Jerusalem, get out of Dodge. But in those days after that tribulation, 
The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great glory. And he will send forth the angels, will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of the heaven. And you say, aha, this has to be the second coming. Look at all of this. Nope. (laughs) This is all about the first um, uh, coming. Um, I shouldn't say it that way. This is all about the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, Our time has run out. I I went off on a little stuff there. I wasn't planning on it. So, (laughs) sorry. Hey, good morning, a whole and holy life. You made it for a live. Welcome. Glad that you are here. Um, So here's what we're going to come back to this tomorrow. And I will get to this tomorrow. If you want to read ahead, go read Isaiah 13. Okay, read Isaiah 13 and read carefully who that oracle is about and look at the terminology in Isaiah 13 and then come back and compare it to what we just read here, what I just read to you here in Mark 13. Okay, so you've got, we already looked at the Son of Man coming in the clouds. That's Daniel 7. So maybe go back and look at Daniel 7 and refresh your memory on what the scene is there where the Son of Man comes in the clouds. What's he doing as he comes in the clouds? And then read Isaiah 13 and, be, and read very carefully who's it written to or about, I should say. And what are the, the, what's the language? What are the terms used to describe the context there in Isaiah 13? And then come back and look at Mark 13 and see if you can see parallels. And that'll give you a, uh, a little preview of where we're going tomorrow. And we will get to it tomorrow. I, I, dan- I didn't get there. I got off on a side trip. I don't know if it's a side trip. But anyway, we'll come back tomorrow. Uh, Holy and Holy Life says, can you come start a church in Georgetown, Texas? <laughs> sure, I'd love to. I'll, I'll be right there. Yeah, I know. We got to get the word out. We got to get the word out. But I uh, appreciated the... Uh, Appreciate the kind words. All right, everyone, I got to go. Uh, have a great day in the Lord. Read this, study this, and uh, be be hopeful. Be hopeful. Today's a good day. The Lord Jesus made this day. God bless. We'll see you tomorrow.